Episode 135, Michael Jurgens, a senior partner in a major consulting firm's winery solutions practice. So for, for me, I think the, uh, the concept of a mistake or of a failure is, uh, is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Michael, his books and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 135. We've got an explicit content warning on the episode today. It's not really, it's not adult content. There is some cursing, um, so make sure you're aware of that if, um, if that bothers you and you don't want to listen. But hopefully you will. It's a great episode. Here we go. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm your host, Mark Raven. I am drinking wine today. It's not just losing it during work from home pandemic times that are dragging out here. This is a rare thing to be drinking wine, but it's rare to be joined by a guest who knows something about wine. And he is Michael Jurgens. He has what uh, is my terms, uh, an amazing double life. I'm going to tell you about that. He is first off, maybe, maybe the more respectable thing is that he's a senior partner with one of the big four consulting firms where he runs the winery solutions practice, overseeing the portfolio services that the firm provides to wineries. He is a certified specialist of wine, a certified sommelier, and a stage two candidate to become what would be the 59th American to qualify as a master of wine, as that certification goes. Um, So before I tell you a little bit more about Michael, welcome to the podcast first. How are you? Mark, what's up? Glad to be here. And Michael is a a bad influence. He's drinking something. What what are you drinking first? I'm drinking an orange wine under protest because it's the only thing available, but uh, I find it more tolerable than most orange wines. And I didn't mean to inadvertently make Michael jealous and I'm drinking a wine as it turns out that, that he really enjoys uh, a Pinot Noir from uh, Christum in uh, Willamette Valley, Oregon. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be waving a, that in front of the camera. And a 2013. So it's got the right amount of years on it too. It's probably right in the, right in the peak spot. Well, maybe you'll, you'll get your hands back on a bottle again soon when you're back in the real home, right? Yeah. So um, you can learn more about Michael. He's got a website, drinkingandknowingthings.com. He has a book of that same name uh, using uh, his pen name, Michael Amen. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And um, when I say double life, it's really more like triple or quadruple life here. He, uh, Michael is the founder of the Bhutan Wine Company, as in the country. You're not just using the name, right? Correct. Um, so we, we may talk, and we will talk about that later on, um, leading the development of the wine industry in the Himalayan country, again, Bhutan. Um, he owns the award-winning SoCal Rum Company, which was recently uh, awarded uh, 95 points, the highest point score in history for any silver rum. And he's also a professor at the, is it Paul Mirage School of Business? Did it I picture that? Okay. Yep. And actually, you, you want to know what's funny is literally I'm I'm giving a final right now and my TA is is having trouble like turning the thing on. Uh, so she's texting me as we're talking, like, how do I turn this on? So it literally is. Uh, 
So that life is interfering with. Uh, so that uh, that's at UC Irvine. Um, do, do you need to take care of that? No, 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 no. I, I text uh, her back. Okay. Uh, hopefully, right. hopefully she'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. So um, Michael, even with the wine, it seems doesn't sleep and does all kinds of amazing things. Um, so out of all of the portfolio of, of, of things in your life, Michael, what would you say is your favorite mistake? So for, for me, I think the, uh, the concept of a mistake or of a failure is, um, is a bit of a misnomer in the sense that, you know, like imagine if, if you were teaching a toddler how to walk you would expect that kid to fall down a lot and you would stand him back up and you would, you know, let him keep going. And I, I feel like that's been my entire life. It's been just one, just a lot of falling down and just getting back up and going for it. So um, when, when we started talking about doing this show and I was thinking like, what's my most spectacular mistake? I'm like, shit, I have a bunch, but um, I figured in the, in the, in the sense of what we're talking about today, maybe I'd talk a little bit about the Master of Wine program. And uh, um, I signed up for this, you know, this program, and it's it's ridiculously hard to pass. It's there's more astronauts in the United States than there are Masters of Wine, just to put it into context, right? And so there's a stage one. Uh, and the uh, where there's an exam, and then there's a if you pass that, you go into stage two where there's a bigger, more in depth exam. And uh, so I passed the stage one the first time I took it, and then I I took the stage two, and there's two parts. There's a, a kind of a theory part, and there's a tasting part. And I passed the theory part the first time, and I have now failed the tasting part four years in a row. I just got my um, my evidence of failure this year on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So literally like, welcome to Thanksgiving. Guess what? You failed again. And and so my girlfriend, she goes, like, hey, you failed. And I only have one more chance. I only have one more at bat. And so she was she was talking to me about it. And she's like, are you bummed? I'm like, are you upset? And I go, no, I'm not upset. Like, why would I be upset? And she goes, well, you know, you failed again. And I go, I didn't. I haven't passed yet is, is the way that I look at it. And, and every time that I've gone through this, you know, extremely difficult wine tasting exam, and now it's four times in a row I've, I've not passed. I, I come back from it and I reflect and I think about like, okay, what do I need to do differently? Like, how am I, how am I missing the ball on this? I, in my mind, I am one of the best wine tasters in the United States. Like, how is it that I'm not passing this? And, and it, it gets me more focused and more energized and more incentivized and, and everything else. Like, okay, how do we do this? And um, I, I'd love to pass, you know, next year. But if I don't, let's say that this rolls forward to next year. I take my final at bat and I miss. And I don't get the, the chance to put the MW initials behind my name. But in that seven or eight year process, I traveled the world. I met a bunch of people. I founded an industry in a country. I wrote six books, you know, about wine. Um, like I got so much out of the journey that almost the outcome of the initials becomes, I don't want to say irrelevant because it's not, it's important to me and, and I want to do it. But God damn, I had a hell of a... <laughs> 
hell of a run, right? You know, it's like it's like get, being the MVP and never winning a ring. You know, <laughs> did how was that? Did you win or did well, you? You know, did you have a good time? I did. Yeah. So, I mean, how much of this effort is a team sport in terms of tasting with other psalms and talking and learning from each other and hanging out versus a solitary practice? So it's you you definitely benefit from your peer group. Unfortunately for me, there I am the only person in Orange County who is in the program. Um and have been like literally for the last five years, there was one guy who joined and then immediately quit. So geographically it's been just me, but I I have um a virtual wine tasting group in New York and I go and taste with them and I have folks up in LA that I, that I get to taste with. And, um, you know, I, we did this thing for, I don't know, probably a year and a half where every Sunday morning at 6am my time, 9am New York time and, you know, 4pm London time, we, we had a one and a half hour conference call. And I did that for 18 months. It doesn't matter what you did on Saturday night. You better get up because 6 a.m. We're talking about wine with some folks around the world. And, yeah. And you know. you, you, you're, you're tasting. And from what I've there, there was a, a book I read a few years ago, Cork Dork, about a yeah, technology Oscar. Yeah. yeah. Te- technology journalist who said, I want to do something different. And now I think she was hanging out in New York and you've got tons of people she was getting together with in person and they're all bringing bottles and they're all tasting. And Starting, we talk about Sunday morning. Um, uh, fair, fair to say, your palate is fresher in the morning, or is that just an excuse to drink early? No, it, it to- totally is fresher in the morning. And the other thing that I have going for me is, so my my girlfriend is uh, a WSET diploma holder, and so uh, so she knows a fair bit about wine. She's actually the CEO of the Bouton Wine Company, um, and so she's been a real godsend in, in terms of. Hey, Ann, go go pour me six wines and you know curate a flight for me. So that's been super super useful too. But yeah, it's it's if you were trying to do this on your own without the benefit of a study group, I think it would be impossible. I actually really feel bad for there's some masters of wine candidates in in places like Peru or wherever, and like they're they I mean they they don't even have good access to. French wines or Italian wines. Like, I don't know how they're doing it. Like my heart goes out to them. I keep banging away. Yeah. Well, and, and so you have, what, what I hear you saying is um, it's sort of more about the journey than just the end result. That if you did fail last year, you wouldn't say, well, oh, that was all the waste of time is what I hear you loud and clear. Oh, oh God, no. It was like, it, it changed my life in 14 different dimensions for the positive. Yeah. Uh, and and while it would be cool to, I mean, imagine if you ran, I don't know, but look, pick it, pick an example. If you ran like the Death Valley um, Ultra Marathon, it's 155 miles, right? Through just hell that very few people have done. And you ran 99% of it and then collapsed at the end. Like, would you sit there and go, oh, that was, I, I'm a piece of shit? No, you'd be like, wow, I got so close. I got so close in doing something that's very few people can do. Um, right. Obviously, you would prefer to, to finish. <laughs> right. But I would still be impressed hearing about that 99% journey when I spend most of the, my day in a cushy chair and I went for a walk today. <laughs> Not a run, like a walk. 
You know, right. I, I put on a Fitbit, which makes me feel like it's more. Like a, yeah, imagine exercise. if you climbed, if you climbed Everest and you got to the close to the top, and then weather made you come back down. Like, would you come down and go, oh, wow? Or would be like, I got close, and that's sort of the way I feel about it. But but not only getting close, I had the benefit of all these other aspects of my life opening up in so many unforeseen dimensions that it's just been an amazing ride. So tell me about wine in Bhutan. I mean, like how this came, this idea came to be, did that ever feel like a mistake or is that, is that moving along? <laughs> well, so you talk about making mistakes. So I actually think one of the, um, one of the attributes of successful entrepreneurs is the ability to fail enthusiastically. And, and we're definitely failing forward and to overuse a, a industry term in Bhutan, but I'll tell you how this started. So my girlfriend, we've been together for 16 years. So it's, she's more like a wife than girlfriend, <laughs> but, um, but I've we, we don't talk about these types of mistakes of why haven't you proposed? That's a success. I've avoided the <laughs> ring. It's been great. Um, no. So, okay. so anyway, so she read this book in high school about this woman that moved to Bhutan and married a Bhutanese person. So the whole time we've been together, I'm hearing Bhutan this and Bhutan that, and we should go. It's amazing. And, I, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. I don't give a shit. And um, then we, I got an email I've been running marathons around the world. I got this email that said, hey, we're going to run the first international marathon in Bhutan. Do you want to come? We have 10 spots. So I immediately responded and said, yeah, we're in. And so they selected us. And I go to my girlfriend. I'm like, guess what, baby? I got you this, your dream trip. We're finally going to Bhutan to run a marathon. And she's like, awesome. I can't wait to go to the Himalayas. And I go, what are you talking about? It, that's an island in Indonesia. She goes, no, it's not. It's, it's between Tibet and Nepal. And I go, what are you talking about? And I looked it up and sure enough, it's in the Himalayas. So I didn't even know where it was. And so we go there and, um, and I, meanwhile, I'm a wine guy, right? I've been all around the world visiting wine regions and I'm, we're going through this country that has just, just these amazing crops. Like they grow the world's best crops in certain verticals. It's like this, this garden of Eden in this little secluded area of the, of the Himalayas. And so I uh, erroneously assume there must be wineries here somewhere. I just have to find them. So I started asking everybody, like, where's the wineries? I want to visit them. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? So we end up at this dinner with these government officials and they go, uh, and I go like, hey, where's the wineries? I want to make sure I visit them while I'm here. And they go, we don't have any. And I go, you guys are fucking up. Like, this is this is prime vineyard territory. Like if you don't have vineyards here, this, you are wasting this terroir that God gave you. Like you have to do this. And they go, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I'm completely talking, you know, like way above my pay grade, <laughs> like telling these guys what they need to do with their country. And they listen. And, um, and I had no intention of starting a winery. I just thought it would be cool if they did it. And that led to a conversation. And I went back to LA and I wrote a white paper on why I thought Bhutan would be perfect for growing grapes. And I emailed it. And that's kind of how it started. So they have the hillsides and the climate and the soil. Those are the hillsides, the, the climate, the soil, the terroir, the microclimates, uh, the biodiversity. I mean, 
this is a country that grows like the world's best mandarin oranges and the world's best red rice. And I'm like, look, if you can grow the world's best fruit, you probably can grow a damn good wine grape. Uh, they just had never thought about it before. You know, it was Marco Polo never got there on the Silk Road with some grapes. The Roman army never got there with grapes. They were isolated. And so, I, like I said, I never set out to make it myself. I just thought they should do it. And so a couple of years later, I went back to run the marathon again because I had so much fun the first time. And all these government people wanted meetings with me. <laughs> and so it turns out everybody read the white paper. And, um, and so they're like, hey, do you believe this? I go, 100%. Like, I've spent my life studying this. I do this. This would work. You guys should do it. And they said, well, we don't know. How, like, what would, what would we do next? And so I wrote a 10-year business plan for the country and I identified all the work streams and all the things that they had to think about. And I emailed them all. Spoke, spoken like a consultant. <laughs> Except for in this case, like I wasn't charging by the hour. I just thought it would be cool if they did it. Like, sure. You know, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I just gave them all this. I said, Go, here's how you would do it. Here's your roadmap. Let me know when it's done because I want to come like taste the wine. I think it'll be awesome. And they said, we want to do this. And I said, you should do it. And they said, we want to do it with you as our partner. And I was like, wow. Okay. That's pretty cool. Uh, I'm all in. So to actually start that first winery. Yeah. That to build in the Bhutan. industry. Yeah. And the way I kind of think about it, it's like, imagine if you were a, like a great graffiti artist and the China came to you and said, we want something to do to graffiti the whole wall. Well, people will see it for forever. It will be a part of our culture. It will impact people for generations to come. Will you do it? Like, how do you say no to that? So then, how, so how many years ago was that? Um, so about the time that we sit, that we pulled the trigger and said, we're going to do it was maybe 2017, 2018, okay. somewhere in that time frame. So you're a couple of years into that 10 year Plan. Yeah, so we actually our first six vineyards just finished their fourth season, and then I have two more vineyards that just finished their second season. So, uh, was there so, a decision to to decide like where to import vines from? Dude, the importation of vines was a goddamn nightmare. Mm -hmm. Nobody would take me seriously. I would email people and say, "I'd like to purchase some grapevine and for my winery in Bhutan." They would be like, "Are you and you're a Nigerian prince, and you need us to save you some money?" And so, yeah. like, I spent months trying to find someone that would work with me. And finally, I drove to one of the biggest nurseries in California. I like just got in my car and drove there and said, "Take me seriously. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is not a scam. Mm -hmm. Here is some money. <laughs> like, sell me some yeah. goddamn vines." And and so that that finally is what worked to get that done. But then there's also the, you know, Bhutan's the only carbon negative country in the world and on track to become the first 100% organic country. Mm -hmm. So like they're very protective of their natural, um, right. you know, flora. Right. Yeah. And I'm saying, I'm going to bring in some, some, uh, some alien <laughs> species and stick them in your stuff. And so right. we had to kind of work through all of that and how we were going to do it and how we were going to control it and, and everything else. And so there was, there's a lot of work that had to be done. I mean, I, I'm trivializing it now, but it was 
a nightmare. Like it, it took so much work to, to get all the pieces together to put a vine in the ground. When I planted the first vine, which was Merlot, by the way, um, it was like, I, I remember sticking it in the ground and just <laughs> thinking like, oh my God, we did it. Holy shit, <laughs> yeah. we did it. It was crazy. So when you think of, um, and, and I had to Google this because I, I wouldn't, I don't know if, no, no offense to the kingdom of Bhutan. I don't know if I could point it out on a map. That's just an American thing, I guess. And uh, the, uh, the, the, it's a highly Buddhist country. So I wonder, so uh, this, this idea of, you know, failing forward and it's not really a mistake that that's somewhat of a Buddhist philosophy. It's my, 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 my Wikipedia understanding of Buddhism. It is, I think, and not, not that I would hold my Buddhist knowledge up on a pedestal, but I think generally speaking, this idea of, you know, the universe is going to take you where it's going to take you and, Along the way, expect as many failures as, as successes and so on and so forth is true. Um, that being said, I'll offer a different narrative. And the different narrative, here's a crazy American punk rock guy saying, for sure, we should plant grapes in, in this spot. And then picking a spot in this huge country and saying, right here is where we're going to plant some Merlot. If that Merlot dies, that then kind of says, ah, see, wow, we tried, we, we told you it wasn't going to work and you tried it and it didn't work. See, like, so um, we had to kind of navigate around that. And there was a lot of skepticism as to whether or not wine grapes would actually grow there. Not on my part, on their part. And then we planted some grapes and then two of the vineyards, the grapes started growing like Jack and the Beanstalk, like right out of the gate. And everyone's like, whoa, they will grow here. And I was like, I know. I told you this. You guys were skeptical. So we needed that. We needed some wins. Um, but within that, like, I know this has never been done before. Right. So. So I don't know if Riesling is going to grow at 3000 feet in Bhutan. I don't know if Merlot is going to grow at 9000 feet. I Like, we don't know. And so I planted a bunch of different grapes at a bunch of different altitudes. And I anticipate that probably half of those grapes are going to fail at the altitudes that we planted them at. And I'm cool with that. I just need one or two to thrive and produce the kind of grapes I want to, I want to see. So what I want to hear you saying, Michael, is um, failing forward requires some persistence instead of resignation to, well, this is what's meant to be. Well, 100%. 100%. Yeah. You're, you know, I, like if if at the end of all of this, if we came out and said, you know what, we've ruled out all altitudes above 5,000 feet, we've ruled out all white grapes, but boy, does Malbec grow well here. And we just became a Malbec producing country. I mean, that worked for Argentina. That's exactly what happened in Argentina. Uh, or Riesling or Cabernet or what, you know, insert whatever grape you want to in that narrative. That's still a huge win. So we're still years away from seeing a Bhutan wine imported and available for purchase, say, here in the States? We, we will make our first wine next year. Wow. And actually, here, Mark, here's something super cool. So imagine if you had the first bottle of wine ever <laughs> made in America. Mm -hmm. Like that'd be in the Smithsonian. That's like The first bottle of wine ever made in the Louvre. 
or in France, that would be in the loop. I'm about to make the first <laughs> bottle of wine ever in a country. Like, how great is that? And so our plan is we're going to take that very first barrel and I'm going to bottle up those bottles. And those are going to be very special. And we're going to allocate them out to probably museums and stuff. Because Yeah, dignitaries, I mean, right? Dignitaries. Well, think about this. Like, what, what country in the world that could produce wine organically doesn't uh-huh. today? I mean, it's it's a it's a vine, man. It grows everywhere on the planet. So, you know, everywhere that you would go, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, we have these vines there." You know, a thousand years old. We've been growing this grape. I mean, even in the U.S., you know, it's a couple hundred years old. Or in New Zealand or Australia, where we imported stuff, that's a couple hundred years ago. There's nothing today where there's a country that could grow grapes that doesn't. And then there's this you know growing list of countries. Um... You know, occasionally you might have a chance. My my wife and I are both really into wine, so it's my listeners who uh, listeners who aren't so interested in wine have already, probably already stopped listening. But um, to to those of you who who stuck with us and geek out on this stuff, I mean, you know, to have a wine from a country like Georgia or Slovenia, you think, well, oh, wow, interesting, Lebanon, or you know, countries that are not maybe world famous for producing wine. It, it is being made in, in many, many countries. Well, in Georgia, I mean, they've been making wine for 6,000 years in Georgia. You know, and St. Lebanon is probably 2,000 years. And still it's relatively unknown. So so to be able to sit there and go like, here's the very first wine that's ever made in a country. Like, I don't think that potential exists. Maybe they'll figure out how to grow wine in Antarctica or something <laughs> with greenhouses. And then it'll be like this <laughs> weird thing. But it, uh, a different meaning to uh, ice wine. A different meaning, exactly. But to be able to do that is, I think, probably the coolest wine adventure you could have. Yeah. Today. So, so wine adventures. You mentioned punk rock. You, you're a musician, a drummer. Yeah, I'm a right? drummer. I'm a punk. Yeah, I've been drumming in punk bands for, I don't know, twenty. Ah, look at you. All right, I, what, I gotta, what kind of kit do you have? I, I don't have a kit right now because we're we're in a condo and neighbors would not appreciate that. But I've played drums my whole life. Never, never, no tattoos, no punk rock band, but I did marching band, jazz band, orchestra, all any name it. I did it other than the, punk rock. But the the jazz stuff, I love playing jazz drums. It's so hard. It is. I mean, punk rock is just hit it hard and fast. <laughs> you know, jazz actually requires talent. It's but, just uh, different talent. Different talent. Uh, yeah. like, you know, as you talk about in 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 your book, um, drinking and knowing things. Is that the full title of the book? Did I screw that up? That's the no, website. You got it. Yeah, drinking okay, and knowing things. Drinking yep. and knowing things. Um, there are different wines through different times, just as there would be different music for different times. I think you. I think that was the analogy you used in one part of the book. I agree with you there. It's not better necessarily. It's just different. I used a Slayer analogy, which I think is there you go. historically uh, um, not a typical analogy you would see in a, in a wine discourse. Is, is, is that, quote unquote, death metal or is that just heavy metal? I don't know. Slayer? <laughs> Slayer? I, I mean, death metal, I think you you get more to like Norway and Finland. I, I would just maybe call it hardcore. Yeah. Um, well, so, you know, if you're a musician, you've you've got to appreciate, especially as a drummer, you've got to appreciate the styles from reggae to jazz mm-hmm. to metal. To, they're all very different. And I, 
I appreciate pretty much all music except for country western because that that's bullshit. But <laughs> everything else is like I can find something to appreciate in. Yeah, I just happen to play punk. So country music is the orange wine of music. <laughs> <to> <laughs> I'm gonna to have to write a drinking and knowing things entry about that. All right, because he gets the orange wine of music. <laughs> I've subscribed to your newsletter now, so I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, oh, that's awesome! In the future, so um, so so that book, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's 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 inf- it, you know, there's there's a lot of information there, but it's written in a a style that's not super intimidating, and that's one of the things you wrote about in the book there. That that we we it's it's a mistake. To create this, um, what's the term? Just to make it intimidating, to create this mystique around you're not holding your glass the proper way, so therefore you're not worthy of learning about wine, or you're not doing the ritual correctly, or you ordered the wrong Chardonnay, and so therefore you're an idiot. Yeah, I we if you go to Europe. Wine is just an integral part of the country. You've been there, you know, right? And there's, you walk into a cafe and there's a cheap jug of of acceptable cheap red wine or white wine on the table, but you can also go and get something super fancy. And no one really makes a big thing out of it. It's just kind of there. Mm-hmm. It's a joyous thing. It's part of how you interact with people. And in the United States, all we have is sort of this snobby <laughs> echelon of yeah. wine. And it's, I think it, what happens is it turns off a bunch of people who would be super into it mm-hmm. if there weren't so many douchebags going, oh, I'm judging you because you drank the wrong Chardonnay or you ordered a, a Gruner instead of a Chardonnay or whatever. And so what happens is you're going to your work Christmas party. You got to bring a bottle of wine. And so you go to the store and you're like, ah, I'm going to get the silver oak because everyone's going to be. Like they're all going to give me a high five when I walk in with that. And I'm going to get to Alexander Valley because it's 80 bucks instead of the $150 Napa Valley one. But I'll look good and everyone will compliment me. And then everybody brought the same wine. (laughs) And I want to be the guy bringing an Ahuligi or a Colares to that party going, try this. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? And so the term you use in the book, uh, wine douchery. Wine douchery. Is something that would be it. You view it as a mistake, but it seems like in a lot of cases, that's sort of the norm default culture. One one thing you wrote about that resonated with me is we all know that person who's, I only drink big, bold California cabs. So that's sort of like saying all I ever eat is hamburger, right? Correct. And all I ever eat is Wagyu hamburger. <laughs> and it must be, you know, from this Wagyu herd or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. What's crazy to me is like the people that do that, they're like, oh, I just got this 98 point wine, you know, let's open it. It's like a 2018. And you're yeah, like, dude, yeah. that wine's mm-hmm. barely drinkable in 10 years. Like yeah. drinking yeah. it yeah. now, it's yeah. it's terrible. But here's my theory on this, Mark. So I think that everywhere else in the world was making wine for thousands of years. And America was the wild, wild west. And in about the late 1960s, Mondavi came out and said, you know what? Like, we can also make, we're as good as the French. And everyone's like, no, you're not. (laughs) And so they had to, they had to over index on douchiness and Mm -hmm. the, the, the spectacle and the pageantry and the mystery and, and everything else to get credibility. And it worked and we got credibility. And now we're on the main wine stage too. 
but we we haven't been able to pull back from it and say, okay, we don't need to do that anymore. We've proven ourselves. We don't need to keep proving ourselves. Let's have fun with it. And we're, we're not doing that. Yeah. yeah. So you know, in, the, in the book you talk about, there are no rules, but it sounds like maybe the closest thing to a, a rule is drinking a wine when it's too young. Or is there a time to violate that or too old? But. Or too old, right? I think, but you're always guessing, right? Like wine has mm-hmm. this lifespan and you want to drink it at the peak. Um, so maybe that would be, if there were a rule, that would be it. Like try to try to guess the peak. It's a good point. But I, um, there, there's some statistic that says something like a vast majority of wine in the United States is consumed within three days of purchase. It's like 80%. From the store. Yeah, it's like 80 or 90%. Yeah. So people generally aren't going to a store that adds the 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 the, the value added service of hey we've been aging this properly for eight years buy it now and drink it. Most people are buying wines that that maybe are meant I don't know if meant to be aged is the right way of saying it, but would be at their peak when they're aged, as opposed to a lot of wines that can be that can be consumed. At, at a much younger age, right? Not not meaning the age of the drinker, but the age of the wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to make a, a wine for the second grader population. <laughs> no, I, I I think you're right, and and there's if in fact that is the case, one could argue you'd be better suited if you were an American wine producer trying to make a wine that was approachable young because people mm-hmm. would enjoy it more, mm-hmm. and it would be cheaper to make too, so mm-hmm. you could sell it more cheaply. And then, you know, I think in, in, in the, you know, you talk about, um, yeah, I'm not trying to encourage snobbery, but there's, there's kind of a middle ground as, as maybe with all things. I remember when my wife and I first started really getting into wine, we lived in Phoenix and there was a little kind of local gourmet grocery store there. And the woman who ran the wine department had just moved from Napa Valley where she'd run a tasting room. And so anyway, so there she is in Phoenix and super helpful. And uh, as we got to know her a little bit, you know, she would say, her biggest joy is finding, helping somebody find a $30 bottle. That's amazing. Instead of just spending more. So there's, there's, there's maybe this middle ground where we don't have to drink the snobbiest, most expensive wines. But one other statistic that comes to mind is like the average selling price of a bottle of wine in the U S is under well under $10. So I wonder how much like looking for this middle ground, if we have friends who say like, I don't like wine. Well, if they tried a twenty or twenty-five dollar bottle, maybe they would. Or is that just I'm, well? I'm not... I think so. I, there's a ton of people that say that I don't like wine, and and for me, I think that that theory is bullshit because it. Let's assume that you drink alcohol, right? So there's a lot of other reasons why you might not like wine, right? But let's assume that you drink alcohol, beer, or spirits, or whatever, but you don't like wine. There's a broader range of wine options than anything else. You get red or white or orange or bubbly or um, super, super sweet or super, super high alcohol or, you know, there's this huge range of, of, um, of styles. And, and I think that when people say I don't like wine, what it means is I have not yet found a wine that I like, but also I'm too intimidated to try a bunch of different stuff. I tried one and it wasn't for me. And so I'm out. Actually, I tell a story in the book about a friend of mine um, who for years would tell me that he didn't like wine. I, I'm not. I just don't like it. I don't like it. And um, and I kept telling him, like, dude, you just haven't tried enough stuff. There's wine out there for you. And we ended up having dinner one night at this place. Uh, 
Atelier Cren in, in San Francisco, which is a super high-end restaurant. And um, though Somalia was coming over and I was geeking out with him. So he starts bringing me all kinds of stuff. And he brought me a glass of um, Tokai Azuasencia, which is like a really syrupy sweet wine. And I said to my friend, like, you've never had something like this. Try this one. And he tried it. And he's like, oh, my God, I get it. Like, this wine spoke to me. I'm like, yeah. It, but it's a syrupy sweet wine. It's not like this big red wine. So like you've never had that before, but now you mm-hmm. understand. He's like, yes, I, yeah. I understand. Well, and you know, there's people who would say they don't like Chardonnay, but all they've ever had is kind of a, the stereotypical California over oaked Chardonnay. And then when they try a French Chablis. Chablis, which is the same grape, but a different style, different terroir maybe, but definitely a different style of production with you know, little or no oak. They might say, oh, well, now I do like Chardonnay. What's, so it's hard, it's so hard to generalize. What it, what's awesome is every time I have one of those people like over at my house, they're like, oh, I hate Chardonnay. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to get you a Chablis. Try a Chablis. Try this. And they're like, oh, I love this. I'm like, that's also Chardonnay. No, nuts. Boom. It's a different... <laughs> <laughs> yeah wine punked (laughs) what so there's a town in in near rioja where every year they have a wine fight so the whole town stays up all night partying even the old people and at 7 a.m everyone dresses up in white and they go out in the vineyard with squirt guns and water balloons and buckets full of wine and they have a massive wine fight to me that exemplifies what we should, how we should be thinking about wine. It is fun. And somehow we have drained the fun out of wine in the United States. But imagine this, like, dude, you live in LA, right? Yeah. Imagine if there was a wine fight in Temecula. Would you drink the drive down for that? (laughs) In a heartbeat, right? Sure. Yeah, well, I try it once. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so... Somehow we're not doing that. And I, and I, I think it's, it's a bummer because I think if we did, more people would be into it. But on, on the flip side of that is, is you touch on the book and something um, I, I believe very strongly as well, that champagne should not just be reserved for celebrations or New Year's or special events. Like champagne can be an aperitif before a meal. It can be consumed with a meal. My wife and I, uh, well, we're talking to wine people and they maybe, you know, they say, oh, we drink a lot of wine. That's not that. That's a good thing to say. Not too much, but a lot. So, but champagne is a, a regular part of that yeah. rotation. So my theory, I want to get your reaction on it, is that people would say, well, I don't like champagne or only drinking the $4 drugstore bottle with the plastic cap that gets opened on New Year's and poured into coupe glasses and like, well, that. That's that's garbage. That would be like somebody having um, Bud Light and saying, "Like I don't like beer." Like they're they're drinking the Bud Light of champagne, right? Or or eating um, I don't know uh, tacos made with the lowest grade ground beef, and then saying, "I don't like tacos." I don't like tacos. And like, well, have you tried the Wagyu taco? That's pretty good. Like, no, I haven't. Let's try that. Yeah. So, no. but but this is the whole point. Like. In America, that person tries that glass of champagne out of the coupe at the wedding and goes, I am not into this. And so then they conclude champagne is bullshit. Yeah. But it's not. If you have a Grand Cru vintage champagne with a steak, that is a mind-blowing experience. Yeah. 
So when we talk about um, you know, different products people might have tried, Let, let's talk about rum. I'm curious to hear a little bit about starting the distillery. Let's say somebody's had some really cheap, sweetened rum with all kinds of garbage spices in it. And they would say, maybe I don't like rum. How, you, you've, you're trying to address that with SoCal rum, right? We're, we're also addressing this. Yeah. So you have to understand the production cycle for, for rum. So back in the day, like down on the plantations hundreds of years ago, they would grow sugarcane. It's the only thing that they could grow. Then they would harvest the sugarcane. When you harvest it, the there's some clear juice that runs out of the sugarcane. And that's the best. And so the village would use that for the highest value kind of use. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of press it and you can get a little bit more out. And then that's the second press and you can get, uh, it's not quite as good as the first. And you go all the way down to the end, the fifth press, where you boil the sugar cane and you grind it up and you mash it down. And the product looks like mud and it's called blackstrap molasses. And then when you've extracted every other possible use from it, then you would make alcohol out of what was left. And that was the traditional way of making rum. And then that, that liquor is so bitter mm-hmm. that you have to cut it with a bunch of fruit juice, sweet fruit juice to make it palatable. And that's why we have daiquiris and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. That was the historical way of making it. And so when we started making rum, I, literally, this is just me being dumb. I go, what if we use the first press? <laughs> mm-hmm. And everyone's like, oh, you can't do that. Way too expensive. Mm-hmm. And I go, well, how much more is it? Yeah. And we did the math and it was like a nickel a bottle. <laughs> yeah. And so I go, we're going to make it with the first press. We're just going to try making it with the, the clear stuff. And all of a sudden, it was the best rum in the world. And I, I would love to say that we were geniuses and we figured this out. But it was literally, it was just me going like, what if you don't start with the crappy leftovers? Like, um, and then what we found is that rum doesn't need a bunch of sweet fruit juice to cut it because it's not bitter and shitty. And, and so we did, I'll tell you this story, Mark, this is pretty funny. We went to this bar in Newport beach and um, we did what we were, we called the, the, um, the vodka challenge. And so we got a really well-known premium vodka and our rum and we put them in like boxes, like the Pepsi challenge. And people would come in and we'd be like, all right, you want to take the vodka challenge? Which, which one do you like more? <laughs> and inevitably, 90% of the people liked the rum better. And what was funny is they go, yeah, I always drink X. And sometimes X was the, the vodka that we were pouring it against. I'm not going to say the names. So I don't want to like be an asshole. But, um, and then, then when I pull the boxes off, and they'd be like, oh, that's rum? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. It's, it doesn't have to be. Like, Get rid of your preconceived notions and your self-limiting beliefs. Like there's cool stuff out there. Try stuff. Um, we, so, we even made a cool video out of it of like the, the reveals where there's like a whole string of reveals and watch people just go. Oh, wow. Yeah. A lot of fun. So, so there's, there's kind of a theme that ties a lot of this together. I think Michael, as, as you put it, you know, uh, doing away with the self-limiting beliefs because at some point you could have said, I can't go study to be a master of wine. I'm a Deloitte senior partner. I don't have the time. I'm too busy. You didn't, you didn't do that. You're, you're helping uh, Bhutan get out of the, uh, the self-limiting belief or it just hadn't occurred to them maybe. 
oh, we can't grow wine here. They just hadn't. And maybe the same thing here about uh, distilling rum in a different way. Yeah. People are like, I'm not a rum person. Like, well, how do you know? Like, have you tried every rum? Try this version. Like, oh, wow. That's yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of a, you know, a philosophical view of the world, which says if you truly could get out of your own way, what could you accomplish? Mm-hmm. And, and not just in a sense of being entrepreneurial, yeah. but just living a, a, a richer, more full life. Jotting that down. If you could get out of your own way. Yeah. Maybe if I didn't feel the need to take so many notes, so we get on my own way as uh, no, I, I managing mean, the podcast here. Um, so, so much uh, cool stuff that you have going on, Michael. Um, I definitely want to, at some point, hear an update from you about taking the exam again next year. Yeah. So, so this, so it's always offered in June, and um, they always res- release the results on the um, the Sunday. Well, basically Labor Day morning, uh, but they release it. England time. So this year they pushed the, the thing back because of, um, of COVID. And so we took the test in September and they released it the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, but yeah, I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the test for the last time in June and I'll find out. I'll either stay up late on Sunday night till one o'clock in the morning, or I'll wake up Monday morning and we'll see what happens. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to pass. I hope I, I I I hope you do too. We'll be uh, rooting for you, and we, we can do a, a follow up at some point next year. Um, next year on the podcast, we can do a live. <laughs> we can you and I can stay up late drinking on Sunday night, live stream the whole thing, and wait for the results to come in. And I'll open them on on live on the show, and <laughs> hopefully be elated. Yeah. So what? Uh, maybe a, a final question here about wine. Um, we've established that orange wine is not your preference. What what special wine would you have open in anticipation of that moment of getting good news or just yeah. something that you really enjoy drinking? I know you said, I, I, I read enough of the book where you said uh, that the question of what's your favorite wine is is a bullshit question. So I'm not asking exactly that, but what wine- well, what, what would I would, drink? I mean, yeah, for, I, I have a tattoo of a burgundy vineyard across my chest, right? So- uh, <laughs> um, Burgundy would probably be my go-to, uh, but I would say in that particular instance, I might also have a bottle of, of champagne open and ready to go, just because it's celebratory, um, or or something something else interesting. I you know I don't know. I, that's a really good question. Oh yeah. Office, oh, I, got, I got nine months to think about it. So yeah, you got time to think about it, and um, champagne can also be used to drown sorrows. I hope yeah, it doesn't what, come to that. Famous quote: "It's like uh, I only drink champagne when I'm thirsty or when I'm not thirsty." Like Catherine the Great said that, or something like that. Sounds like, a Win- sounds like a Winston Churchillism, or it, yeah, it was kind of a Churchillism, but it was a woman that said it. But okay. I can't remember who. I'm, There's also a lot of great Winston Churchill wine quotes because he famously started every day with a glass of champagne. Yeah, and there, of course, there's the Madam I am drunk, but but you are ugly and I'll be sober in the morning, <laughs> which is, I just think fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, so one other question for you, Michael, before we go, and I should have asked this early on, like, you know, clearly 
something in your life sparked this passion about wine. Do what, what was that? So I, I, so everybody that I know that is really passionate about wine can trace it back to a single experience where they had, they tried something and it sparked something in their brain and it woke them up and it spoke to that side of their brain. And I think that we're neurologically wired for this too. And that's why we've been making wine for 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, eons, literally before we had written language, we were making and drinking wine. So I think the, the human brain is wired for that connection to happen. If you can spark it. Um, and so for me, I know exactly what that day was. It was, I, my father had gone to Italy and he was not a wine guy. And somebody there gave him a bottle of 1975 Gatnara. So this would have been in about 1992. Um, and he brought it home and it was wrapped in yellowed plastic. It looked fancy. And he said to me, Mike, I got this bottle of wine. It's old. Old wine is good. We should drink it. And I go, I don't drink wine. Wine's bullshit. And he said, well, give it a try with me. Like, I don't drink wine either, but I'll, I'll try it. I go, okay, dad, I'm in. And my, he goes, let's smoke cigars. Because cigars and wine go great together. And I go, <laughs> okay. And my mom, I remember this too. Like, I remember all of this, like yeah. vividly. My mom goes, if you're going to do that, you go in the garage. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we sat in the garage and I unwrapped this bottle of 1975 Gatineau from the yellow plastic. And we poured it into red Solo cup. And I remember smelling it and going, huh. And then I tasted it and I was like, oh, wow. I understand why people care about this beverage. I, at the time, didn't care about it, but it, it, I was like, okay, there's something here. And that sort of led to me just digging deeper and deeper and deeper, as well as you can, like when you're a 22-year-old kid with no money and trying to explore and that. Once I started working at a big firm, you know, you get the expense account and dinners and stuff and you kind of gradually increase your game. And I just, I kept doing it. And there's, I I would say I've been fortunate enough. We call those wines epiphany wines. I've probably been fortunate enough to have that experience five or six times in my life. Um, And you never know when it's going to happen and when it does. It's this sort of magical event where everything slows down and you can remember who you're, who you were with what you were eating, what we were saying, everything about it. It's just solidified in your memory forever. And it's, it's awesome. Uh, you, I don't know if you've had a similar epiphany experience with wine, Mark, but. I, nothing that, nothing, not a moment that I can remember vividly like that. I did not grow up in a, a household that, that you know, my parents didn't drink wine regularly, if at all. They have a little bit more in their uh, retirement, they've gotten a little bit more into wine. I think it was a little bit, it was more, gra- like it was, when you it were was more like, gradual. But you didn't have like, there's never been an experience like when you were in Burgundy or when you were in Champagne, hmm. like you were sitting on a balcony and oh, you had this wine and it was just spectacular and you were with the oh, yeah, person yeah. that you love. Like, like you've had those moments where it's just like, holy shit, everything oh. is perfect. Many, many amazing moments, but nothing that was like this epiphany 
that said, oh my God, now I've discovered wine. Like there wasn't anything okay. dramatic, but I can think back like in college when I was probably able um, to, to, to just legally drink. I remember going to a, a BYOB Italian restaurant with a bottle of Chianti and having leftovers to bring home, which, okay, <laughs> you know, I was easing my way into it. And I threw it in you know, like, you know, my dorm fridge, which was probably 40 degrees. And I remember even, you know, even then, like kind of a friend kind of tis- tisking me like, oh, you don't need to, you don't need to refrigerate that after you've opened it. But, um, you know, my wife and I uh, did, did our honeymoon in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, mm-hmm. A little over just over 20 years ago. And, and we still love going back there. But what that did then was started to pique our curiosity to explore different regions, different countries, and just to, to, to see the differences. So I don't have an answer to that question of what's your favorite wine, because I, I, my favorite wine might be the one that, that you would offer me. And if you could pour me a glass through the Zoom window, like here, this is something new. You, you know, I, so I, I, I do have certain wines that I have preferences for, but I, I'm, I'm still finding those moments. And there's, there's well, something to be said for corny or cheesy, if you will, like meeting the people who make the wine and being at the place where it's made creates a connection. And it could be, you could frame it in terms of marketing. They've created consumer loyalty, but there's, there's something special about meeting somebody who's the 13th generation of winemakers and it's just, it's, it's, it's who they are. Um, moments if like you, that are very, cool. if you can taste wine where it was made with the person who made it, that is the best that wine is ever going to be. It doesn't matter if it's a $6 wine or a $600 wine. It's that is going to be the best, but you know what I think it is? I, I truly believe there is neurological wiring that is primitive tribal shit that is like, when we were in tribes together, somebody would make some wine and the tribe would get together and they would share it together. And, and like that is the vestiges of that are still there. And when you're at a winery and, and I would tell you, everybody that's listening to this podcast right now has that experience where they're, they're at the winery and the wine is delicious and they join the club and they get the shipment <laughs> later and it's not as good. Right. <laughs> How many times that happened? Well, so it's, you know, vacation mode versus the end of the workday mode. You know, who knows, but. Yeah. But I, I think there is something that speaks to how we interact and, and, and just experience life. I mean, look, yeah. look at, look at nature. Birds will eat fermented grapes and get drunk or fermented fruit and get drunk and maybe enjoy it. But yeah, there's that social dimension that, that, that we bring to it as humans. And it's an intoxicant, which is, which is also dope. <laughs> so when we Yeah. All right. So uh, our guest today has been Michael Juergens. Um, go check out his website, drinkingandknowingthings.com. You can sign up for uh, the fun emails that will help teach you about wine. The book is out there on Amazon. There's a volume two now of the Drinking and Knowing Things. Uh, it's, it's a pre-order. It's gonna, it'll be out in March. Out in March. So I hope people will go um, check that out. So Michael, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for sharing um, some thoughts. Maybe you've helped, um, you know, kind of change people's perceptions about what, what might be mistakes or not be mistakes about the wine world and, and the things you've done. So it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. It's been great, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. To learn more about Michael Jurgens and his books and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake one, three, five. 
As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.